0: All right, we well can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and continue to pray for um, Vicky and her family. We had a uh, wonderful gathering yesterday for her um, son Daniel's memorial service, we had close to 200 people here, believe it or not, <laughs> it was packed. So uh, it was a wonderful time to share the word with everyone that gathered in his memory and uh, pray for that family. They've gone through a lot. But this morning as we uh, turn our hearts uh, to God's word, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I just read a couple verses out of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, we see our our text before us here. And I just want to read verses uh, 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Father, we pray that you would uh, allow us to understand and and apply these verses to our heart. We thank you for your truth. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last week... Uh, or the week before, I guess, or maybe it was last week. Last week we started with some special speakers, so I'm kind of mixed up. But uh, uh, as we review from a couple weeks ago, we learned a, a couple things about a faithful, uh, impactful church from these first couple verses. And we learned, first of all, that uh, the church that makes an impact is a loyal, a local community of people who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that in verse 1. And then secondly, we said the church that makes an impact is the work of God, and this is where we left off last time, not of men. It's the work of God, not of men. And this has great implications for us, as we'll find out in the coming weeks. And we, we understand this truth because it says in verse 2 there, we give thanks to God. Uh, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, he's not thanking them, He's thanking God for their salvation and for their faithfulness in the Lord. And he's consistent to make uh, mention of them in his prayers. And so last week we left you with the question that if it is the work of God, our salvation is purely the work of God, we believe that to be true, and that's who Paul is thanking for their election, well, how do we know if we're elect it's a good question to ask right how do we know and i realized that the topic of our teaching in the next couple of weeks is a touchy one with a lot of believers in the church um and there's a lot of different views on the doctrine of election and it's unfortunate that it's created a huge divide in the christian world in the, in the universal church of christ um We've had occasion where we've had to teach on this topic before, this doctrine, the doctrine of election, and people actually have left our church because they didn't agree with the doctrine of election. So it would be easier for me just to kind of skip it over, (laughs) skip over it and just kind of move on to something else. But as you know, we teach through the Bible here, and we deal with not only the easy verses that are easy to apply, but also some of the difficult ones. And so, you know, I ask myself, why do I, when I teach through this, usually you risk upsetting people or, you know, creating divisive conversation. But there are several reasons, and this is kind of an introduction to this whole next couple weeks. But um, first of all, and if they're there in your outline, um, the first reason that we teach the, the doctrine of election is because here in Thessalonians, it's in our text. I don't have a choice. If I preach through the Word of God and I come to a verse that I don't like, I don't have the option, or I guess I do, but I choose not to take it, of skipping over it. Because that wouldn't be someone who's faithful to the text of Scripture. That's why we believe you should teach through books of the Bible, so that people understand the verses in their context. You know, not just pulling verses out randomly and applying them, uh, misapplying them to people, or drawing certain conclusions from them. We want people to understand the The Bible in its context. And so I don't want to dodge it. It's it's not in my nature to do that anyway. And so we're going to take on the doctrine of election for the next couple weeks. And notice here, Paul didn't say, I thank God, knowing how you all decided to follow Jesus. He doesn't say that. But he says, I thank God, knowing his choice of you knowing his choice of you. And to accurately handle the word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15, we want to make sure that we're faithful to the way, to what the Bible says, not what we wish the Bible says. And, uh, and by the way, when I come to texts, if you're wondering, if I come to texts like, Uh, Romans 10.13, when it says, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, I teach it just that way. Now you might say, well, that's a contradiction. How could you say that God elects some, but it's whosoever may? I don't know. That's in the mind of God. That's in his thing. That's not me to understand that. But it's in our text, so we're going to go through it. Secondly, um, the reason... To preach on this subject is that it's a frequent theme throughout Scripture. If you were to take the doctrine of election and set it on the shelf and not talk about it because you didn't want to be divisive, you would be setting on the shelf many texts of Scripture because it's so clear. It's so clear. All the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 12, it says, God chose Abraham Abram out of the city of idolaters and promised to work through him to bring his salvation to all nations. That's who he chose. That was God's sovereign choice. Um, He didn't choose Abram's entire city. He didn't even choose his entire family, by the way. But he chose Abram. Um, God chose Abram but he didn't choose anyone else in Asia, Africa, Europe, or the Americas at the time. He didn't do that. But then, a little further on, it says that he refused to choose Abram's son, Ishmael, but instead, rather, he chose who? Isaac, right? That's what the Scriptures say. Um, so all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see God exhibiting his choice, his sovereign purpose. He rejected Isaac's son Esau, and he chose who Jacob, whom he renamed Israel. And centuries later, Moses said to Jacob's descendants in Deuteronomy 4.37, here's what he said, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, he chose them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, a little further on in the book of Deuteronomy, verses 7 and 8, it says this. It was not because, speaking of why he chose Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. (laughs) But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This was God's doing. And to drive this, home, this point home even further, a little later on in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 15, he says this, listen, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. I mean, you know, we could be here for weeks, hours, weeks, if we wanted to go through all the verses in the Bible that talk about God's divine election, his choice. The New Testament offers continual verses. And it refers to believers as God's elect or those chosen by God. Matthew twenty two fourteen. It says, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. And on and on and on. And, you know, I don't have time this morning to go through them all, but I've written down probably uh, 20 verses here in text that deal with election. And if you want the list, I'll email it to you. That's fine. But we can't skip over such important doctrines just because it may be a little divisive divisive in the the body of Christ. We want to understand it properly. We want to understand it in its context, and so we're going to be doing that. And then the third reason is not just because we teach through the Bible and not because it's everywhere on the pages of Scripture, but thirdly, um, we don't want to skip over what Paul says here in our text because I believe that the doctrine of election is, first of all, profitable to us as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ, but I would also say it's, it's also um, and maybe we've been Christians for a long time. It's a, it's a good doctrine to understand. And maybe you're a brand new believer. But it's also, it's also wonderful for new believers when you understand that, wow, your salvation is not your doing. That God set his love on you, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. It's an amazing, amazing thought. And it kind of helps us live out this Christian life that we're called to live out. Second Timothy Paul states in chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable, first of all, for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every, what, good work. Okay, all of the Bible is inspired by God. We can't pick and choose what we want. And although Paul had only been with these new converts many out of a pagan background for a few months. He had taught them this truth. So you don't want to avoid the doctrine of election with someone who's new to Christ. Um, It's a very important bedrock doctrine that you understand correctly. And he assumes that they were just agreeing with him on this. He doesn't go into it, he just mentions it. He doesn't even discuss. Define it. He just says, God has chosen you from the beginning for your salvation. So, you know, he doesn't need to explain it to him. In Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he repeats it again. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So if you've struggled with this doctrine... I'm with you. I struggle with it every time I have to teach it. Okay? Because my understanding is limited. All right? Um, But we need to ask God to give us understanding and also to give us a teachable heart. Maybe you were raised in a church where, well, they didn't teach the doctrine of election. Maybe they taught, oh, no, no, you know, everybody gets saved when when they express their own will, their free will. We're going to talk about that a little later. Maybe that's your background. Um, That's fine. But you need to understand what the scripture says about this. Um, I've asked people, since election is a mystery hidden in the secret counsel of God, in other words, we can't understand it. I'm not going to explain the doctrine of election to you. And you're not going to be able to walk away from our times together going, oh, now it makes perfect sense. Why didn't I get that before? No, you're still going to be scratching your head. Because I'm still scratching my head. (laughs) Um, But I want you to ask the question, how can you know if you're elect? How can you know if God has chosen you? And so we're talking about eternal destiny here. We're not talking about uh, something that's trite and trivial. It's not just an academic question, is what my point is. Paul's assurance here in the text, he says that God has chosen the Thessalonians. It rests on what he observed in their lives. I mean, he started this church, and he, he'd seen them come to Christ. He'd seen their lives transformed. And he observed something about their faith and their changed lives that caused him to say, I know that God has chosen you. So many times we're quick to want to believe that someone's saved, aren't we? You know, we want to make it an easy process a lot of times. So we, we'll, we'll be sharing our faith with someone, and, and you know, we, we come to a point where they're agreeing with us, agreeing with us, and, you know, well, have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, no. Well, here, just say this prayer. Just say this little prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my life and forgive my sins. And... Then we say, well, hallelujah, you're a Christian now. Go on your merry way. That's, That's really not what the Scripture teaches. I don't see Jesus doing that with people in the New Testament. I see Jesus giving them choices, laying the gospel out before them. But he also allows their lives and their transformation to speak for itself. If you're here today and you're holding on to some kind of a little prayer that you prayed when you were three or four and the Sunday school teacher led you in that prayer and said, well, now you're a Christian and you haven't experienced the transformation that we're speaking about and what we'll see in the New Testament in your life, then you you want to maybe observe the verses that tell us to examine your own self to be sure that you are in the faith. Because there's verses in the New Testament that tell us to do that over and over again. We can't just take it for granted because we raised a hand or we walked an aisle or we prayed a prayer that somehow, well, I guess we're just saved. But we don't have any desire to read God's word. We don't have any desire really to, to, to come to church for any other reason than we've always come to church. It's a social thing. So I want you to understand, you can know that you're elect if God has powerfully changed your life through your reception of the gospel. You can know, without a doubt. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to go to bed every night wondering, well, what would happen if I die? You can know for sure. And as a result of preaching the gospel, Paul saw here in Thessalonica these people that had received the word, Look at what he says in verse 6 all the way down there. He says, you received the word in much affliction. So it wasn't easy for them to receive the gospel like it's easy for us in America to receive the gospel. It was difficult. When they came to Christ, they were leaving all their pagan background behind. They were leaving all their, 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 their Judaism behind. And they were coming to Christ. And because of that, if you think it was easy, a lot of these people, when they made a profession of faith in Christ in the New Testament, for example, and, and the, the way that people would know that they were truly Christians is when they would actually go through the, the, the reception of, of believers' baptism they would follow Christ in the waters of baptism. You know, we do it here. We fill this tub up and we have people come forward and share a testimony with the people gathered here. That's, that's called a friendly crowd. Okay. Um, I remember there was a church that we did baptisms on the beach. And people would stop and then, what's going on here? What are all these people here for? Oh, they're, they're being baptized. And the people would... Go out into the water, the waves, and the pastor would ask them for their testimony, and they'd share their testimony. Basically, they're preaching to the people on the on the beach. And people would stop and they would wonder. You know, and 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 that's out in plain daylight of, of all the world to see. And some people would mock and walk away, some people would heckle them or whatever. You know, when these people came to Christ, and when they made a profession of faith in Christ and they followed him through believer's baptism, they did it publicly, guess what? If they owned a business, they were, saying, they were telling the community basically, okay, we're not going to go to that guy's business anymore. He's one of those crazy Christians. They were hurting themselves by making this profession of faith, is what my point is. And yet they still did it, and they did it with much affliction. I mean, there are places in the world today even... You make a profession of faith in Christ, if you're in a certain religious sect or religious background, you're basically putting your life on the line. Most assuredly, you will be killed for your profession of faith. At the very least, your family will disown you. You'll be put out on the street. They don't want anything to do with you. We don't understand that in our American mindset because it's always been, quote, a Christian country, and and we don't have a problem with that. Well, the tide is changing. Slowly but surely, it's changing. And there may come a day, one day, when even here in this great United States, that it will be illegal to teach the word of God. It will be illegal to gather in Jesus' name. I mean, wrap your mind around that. I mean, we can't even conceive of that. But that day could come. And so they had become imitators of their founder, their discipler, Paul. And they became imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why we're called Christians, is it not? Little Christ, little Christian. You know, they, we, we go out into the world, we're, we're supposed to be the, what, the salt and the light to a lost and dying world. We're to be an example of what... Christ would be, you know, you have the little, uh, was it, what would Jesus do, right? WWJD, well, you know, what, what did Jesus do? But are you really understanding that that's what we're supposed to be doing? That's how we're supposed to be treating people. That's how we're supposed to be bold with our faith. So they became imitators of not only Paul, but of the Lord himself, And their faith was evident by their good works. Look at what it says in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And he doesn't just stop there and look down at verse 8. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't have to say anything. In other words, you guys are are just incredible testimonies for the Lord in the world in which they lived. So he was confident beyond any measure that he could totally say, you know what, God has chosen you for salvation. He didn't hedge. And there's a number of objections a lot of times that come up against the doctrine of election. There's, there's various, but we'll cover some here this morning. Some of them, one of them is this. If God has predestined everything, including who will be saved, if you really believe that, then why pray? You ever heard that? Why do anything? Why pray? What will be will be, like the little song says, right? No. Wrong. Um, the first point here is election does not negate prayer. Election does not negate prayer, but rather encourages it when you understand it properly, because it's God's doing. Salvation is God's doing; it's not our doing. And that's why he says there in First Thessalonians, "We give thanks to God always for you, constantly." That means continuously mentioning you in our prayers. He's bearing in mind, one translation says. And it refers to Paul's frequent, repeated prayers for these beloved people in Thessalonica. Later, he exhorts these new believers over in chapter 5, verse 17. Remember what he says, right? Pray without what? Pray without ceasing. And you say, well, who can do that? He doesn't mean pray without taking any breaks. He's not saying that. That would be impossible. But rather, he says that we should pray repeatedly, that we should pray often, that it should be a way of life for us. Some who deny the doctrine of election argue that God has done everything that he can do to save people. But now the choice is up to them. That's what some people believe. They say that God never forces his will on anyone. You ever hear that? And so salvation basically in their minds it depends purely upon people's free will. I mean we like the idea of having a free will, right? But Jesus said this in John 8:34. He said truly truly I say to you, which is kind of his way of saying, "Hey, pay attention, this is important." When he says truly truly, he's kind of, "Hey, are you awake?" Listen up. This is what he's saying. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to what? To sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you practice sin? Every hand would go up, right? We're not perfect. What does that make us? Outside of Christ, we're slaves to sin. By the very definition of being a slave, that's something that's what? Not free. Someone who's not free. So the idea that people come to Christ just because they're f- kind of expressing their own free will, that, that is contradictory to what the Scripture says. It says if you're not in Christ, guess what? You're a slave to sin, Once you become a Christian, is that when we get our free will? No. The Bible says then you're a what? A slave to Christ. (laughs) I mean, we like to think we're free. If salvation depended on free will, then guess what? You should not waste your time praying for anyone to be saved. Think about it. It would be a waste of time. Because God would be in heaven saying, yeah, you know what? I would like to see them get saved too. But they've got that free will and, you know, I just can't override their choices and let's hope they decide to choose me. So our prayers would be ridiculous. But scripture shows a rather different picture of God. The biblical picture of God shows us that God always accomplishes his purposes always Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10 Isaiah 46:10 says declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not done saying and this is God saying this my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose Or Job, chapter 42, verse 2. I know Job says that you can do all things, speaking of God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I mean, think about it. He sent his son to earth. He sent Jesus to earth for what purpose? To save a people for his glory. That's what God did. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, you can see this very clearly. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 12. It says, Blessed be the God, in verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as he chose us. Who is the us? He's speaking of Christians. Christians. He's speaking of the church at Ephesus. Even as he chose us in him, he, God, chose us, Christians, in him, in Christ, when? What's it say? Before the foundation of the world. Now, as I look around the audience, some of you are pretty old. Some of you are older than me. But guess what? None of you are that old. (laughs) None of you have been here since the foundation of the world. Not one. But it says that's when God chose us. Guess what? None of us were here at the foundation of the world. Go back to Genesis. There's nothing. And before all, there was nothing. That's when God chose us in him. Why did he do that? It says in verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then it says this, in love he predestined us, who is the us, his choice, the ones that he chose for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according, look at this, to the purpose of their will. Does it say that? No, it says of his will, of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in his beloved. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11 says this, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory very clear. John six forty four. Jesus said this, no one, <laughs> I mean, Jesus, I, the thing I like, love about the words of Jesus, there's no wiggle room here. There's no, well, what did he really mean by this? I mean, he spoke in black and white terms. John six forty four. he says this, no one can come to, the, to me, no one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. And he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, well, what does that mean? It means no one can come to me, can come to Christ, unless the Father first draws him it it takes God's drawing for someone to come to Christ you can't just figure it out on your own that's why it's such a transformative supernatural thing when someone gets saved it's not our doing it's God's doing now at this point in Jesus's ministry there's a lot of people following him And a large number, a company of his disciples, at this point in time in his ministry, threw up their hands, they grumbled, and they turned away from him. They said, we're not going to put up with this. What's he talking about? I'm here because I want to be here. This purpose of the Father's will, what does that mean? They didn't like this teaching. For the same reason people in the greater church, don't like the teaching of election because it's a very humbling, humbling doctrine. The idea that somehow you didn't figure this out on your own, that you were so desperate that you were at your wits' end that you needed to cry out to God for his grace and his mercy, and if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be saved, that's a pride-crushing doctrine. When you get to heaven, you know, Jesus isn't going to say well, how did you get here? What did you do to get here? No. God's going to ask one question for those who are attempting to enter heaven. is what did you do with my son? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And at that message, many of his disciples, his followers at the time, left him. That means, you know what, you can be a disciple of Christ and not be a true believer. Disciple just means follower. That's all it means. And there was a lot of people who were following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Just like there's a lot of people in the church today that come to church every Sunday for all the wrong reasons. I mean, they're more worried about what the rest of the church would think if they didn't show up. Why, you just got to go to church. Because then people think, if I didn't go to church, then what would they think of me? No, they have no concern what God might think. <laughs> maybe we should stop and ask ourselves what God might think about that. But here all these disciples of Jesus left him because they didn't like this teaching. And, and you know what he did? He didn't say, oh, sorry, I, you know, maybe I misspoke, didn't mean to offend you. Come on back in. We don't want to hurt your feelings. No, he doubled down. Look it down further. If you doubt me, look at verse 65 of John chapter 6, the same chapter. He says, for this reason I have said to you that no one comes to me unless it has been granted him from my Father. So he just he, he reiterates it. See, if the Father is able to draw lost people to Christ, if that's true and that's what this says then we should pray that he would do so. We should pray that he would do so. It's his doing, not ours. God ordains the means as well as the end. He ordains both. Prayer and the proclamation proclamation, the proclaiming of the gospel, are his ordained ordained means to save his elect church. That's how he's chosen to do it. You can scratch your head all day long and say, well, why did he do that? I don't know. But he did. And I know it's for his own glory. So we should pray for open doors for the gospel... both for ourselves and for other believers. In Colossians Paul expresses this in chapter 4 verses 2 and 4. He says this. Colossians chapter 2 or chapter 4 verse 2, he says, "Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving." At the same time, he says, "Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word." To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may be, make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he prayed that God, you know, he just didn't say, well, God's going to save whoever he's going to save and I'm, I'm not going to participate. No. He understood that that was the means by where the gospel gets out there. God works in response to our prayers Now, we don't know the ones whom God has granted that they will come to Christ until after they're saved. We don't know that. I don't think anyone in this room would have predicted if you lived back in the time and say you were a new believer and someone said, hey, you know what? I think we need to pray for this guy named Saul. I think most people would say, (laughs) <laughs> that guy's killing christians i don't think he's going to come to christ there's not much hope for him we fall into that mindset when we're instructed in god's word to pray for those in authority over us how do we pray are we praying For our president's salvation? Are we praying for our vice president's salvation? Are we praying for those in Congress and Senate? Are we praying for their salvation? Are we praying for God to get them? Because we think, well, there's no way, there's no way somebody like Trump could ever come to Christ or somebody like Biden could ever come to Christ. That would be impossible. No, it's not. No, it's not. We don't know. But that's what they thought of Saul. If you doubt, look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Even after he came to faith in Christ, many of the disciples were skeptical about his conversion. They didn't think it was authentic. They thought, no, this is a ruse. This is a trick. He's, he's, he's kind of drawing us in so then he can kill us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 13, starting verse 10, he says, Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, How would you like to be the reception of this vision? Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Willing to do whatever you want, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying verse 12. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And you think, Ananias, I mean, he's saying, here I am, Lord, send me whatever you want me to do. But look at what he says in verse 13. But Ananias answered the Lord, like he's talking back to God. I mean, that's not being a good scenario. That's not a good place to be in, right? I mean, this is the God Almighty, the one who's in charge of everything, including your existence, and you're going to say, well, I don't know about this idea, God. He says, Lord, I have heard a lot about this guy. That's what he says. Verse 13. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And you want me to do what? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, "Go. Look at look at what it says. This is so this is so beautiful. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 26 Further down it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Speaking of Saul, Paul. And they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. See, when someone gets saved, it's always a miraculous transaction. God's hand, Isaiah 52 says, chapter 50, verse 2 It's not so short that he cannot save those whom he chooses to save. It doesn't matter what their background is, it doesn't matter how much sin they have. It's irrelevant. I mean, you hear this occasionally. You hear an interview with someone who's come to Christ, and their background is so horrid you would think, is that even legit? Is this a PR stunt? But sometimes they're sincerely saved and they're truly changed. And if God wants to save them, he's going to save them. I mean, think about it. If he wanted to save the wicked people of Nineveh in the Old Testament, he does so. He does so in spite of the the lackluster preaching of even his chosen prophet, Jonah. His unwilling prophet. Go and, and preach to the people. And then what did not Jonah do. He ran the other way. God, I, I'll go anywhere. I'm not going there. So we should pray for God to accomplish his sovereign purpose by saving a people for his glory. We need to clearly, clearly understand that. Because if we don't get that... Um, we can't go any further. But secondly here, because election is God's purpose, which cannot fail, it results in changed lives. So it doesn't negate prayer, but it does result in changed lives. because it is God's purpose. And God's purpose can never fail. That's why he says in verse 3 there of chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. He lists three things there. That's why I said these are our three evidences that really support your election, that help you affirm your salvation. Paul knew that God has chosen these people for salvation because he could see the results in their lives. So many times, and I've done it, and other people have done it. You know, you come across somebody who's not a Christian, and you you do your evangelism thing, and they make the profession of faith in Christ, and, you know, they pray the prayer, they do whatever they have to do. And, And then years later, you run into them, and there's not a sign of Christ in their life. I mean, they're as lost as anybody could be lost. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I prayed with them. You know, they made a profession of faith. We do this a lot of times with our own children because we want to believe that they're Christians. And then we look at their lives. There's nothing depicting Christ, but what do we say? But, you know, in second grade, they, they, the Sunday school teacher came up to the, the classroom afterwards and said, oh, little Johnny made a profession of faith today we even gave Johnny a little birthday for his first salvation. And we affirmed that Johnny was a Christian, even though when he entered his teenage years, Christ was far from his life. And he got into things he shouldn't have gotten into, and he was living a life that's totally opposite of what you would call Christian in any form or fashion. And then high school came, and then you can go down the road. But we know he's a Christian because he made... No. No. Nothing's changed. I mean, nothing has changed in an individual's life. There's no salvation. When I was a youth pastor, I used to tell kids, you know, they'd go to camp. And they'd throw their little piece of wood in the fire and be all happy they came to Christ. And... You know, I mean, I was excited at first too, but then after a couple of years of doing that year after year and seeing the same kids come home and get back into the drugs and get back into the immorality and, and then go back to camp and make the whole thing and do it over and over and over again, I used to tell kids this, you know what? No change, no Jesus, no Jesus, no change. Period. I don't care what you prayed. I don't care how many times you go to church, how many friends you witness to. No change, no Jesus, no Jesus, no change, because that's the only way change can come, authentically, is when God does that work of salvation in someone's heart. So we have to ask ourselves, can we know? Paul knew, he knew about these people, for those three reasons. They had a working faith, and we'll just introduce this today, and we'll get into it next week more. But the three evidences worth remembering of your election are, first of all, a working faith. What does that speak of? It speaks of a faith that that has made an effect in your life. It's something dealing in the past. It's talking about a conversion that has happened. That's why, in New Testament terms, when someone comes to Christ, we say that they are what? Born again. Okay, they're born again. Why? Why? Because they're so bad off. We're so far into our sinful behavior and our sin has stained us so deeply. You can't just paint a little Jesus on top of what you got. God says, I have to recreate you. (laughs) There's no hope for you. You are so dark and stained by your sin that you could scrub night and day for the rest of your life and you're not going to clean yourself up enough to stand in my holy presence. The only way I can do that is if I can transfer the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ to you. And in order for that to happen, you have to acknowledge that you need that. See, we don't want to acknowledge that. We want to believe that no, there's some good in me. I'm a good person. I mean, I care about people. I help people in the neighborhood and feed the homeless and really care. I'm, I'm a sincere person. You don't know me, Steve. I'm, I'm a really good guy. By the world standards, you may be the best guy in the world, but guess what? That's not going to get you to heaven. If that's why you're trusting him, my friend, you're going to be sorely mistaken when you die and you stand before God and you say, well, oh, I, God, I was a good guy. Yeah, I mean, his answer is painted for us in Matthew 7. I mean, there are people there in that chapter that say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we healed the sick, fed the poor? And they're calling Jesus Lord. And his answer to them is haunting. His answer is, What? I don't know who you are. That should put fear in your heart, it does mine. That working faith is a faith that has happened in your life at a point in time. And you see demonstrably a change. God has affected change in your life. That's why the Bible, in biblical terms, it says you've been called out of what? Darkness. Into his light. I mean, there's no wiggle room there. He doesn't say, oh, you know, I'm going to call you out of darkness into gray. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, no, from darkness to light. So he says, I'm constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. The fact that, you know what, I saw God do a change in you. You were transformed by the glorious work of God. The second one is the laboring love, and we'll get into these next week. I'm just kind of mentioning them here today. But the first one deals with our past. The second one deals with our present. Because once you're saved, once you come to Christ and God has Forgiven your sin and you are transformed by his glorious power. What happens? There's a difference. You're not the same person. The Bible says all things, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Guess what all things includes? Your desires, your passions. So a laboring love is something that's ongoing. It's it's talking about your present life. The first one talked about the past and talked about your conversion. The second one talks about the present life and your life of service. That's why he says it's a labor of love. That word labor means just that. It's laborious. Do you ever ask yourself, as a Christian, why do I keep doing this stuff? Nobody cares. Nobody appreciates it. Why do we keep doing this? Who cares? I mean, I could stop doing this tomorrow. and It wouldn't make any difference. Because we're called, like Christ was called, to serve. Right? He came as a servant. He didn't come to be served. He said that in his own words. Don't think you're going to serve me. I've, I've come to serve you. To give up my life for you. Shall we be called to anything less? I mean, in the church today, we have professing Christians who think, well, I'm just going to carve out of my week, week's time this little segment of time, and that's going to be my service time. Don't ask me to do anything outside of that because I'm not going to. I'm just going to carve out this little section of time, the two hours. Let's see, we start at 10, and he better be over by 11.30, and maybe I'll grab some coffee and stuff and talk to a couple people, but by 12 o'clock, I'm out of here. I have a life. I have things to do, places to go, people to see. What, do you expect me to spend all day here at church? You know what's been really cool? Last couple months, my wife and myself have found ourselves as, as well as some other couples in the church sitting in the fellowship hall talking to some of our younger people till three, four. One day it was close to five. And I said, uh, are we going to order pizza? Are we just having an evening service? The... Well, God, what are you telling me here? Why are we still here in this fellowship hall? Everybody else has gone home. Why are we here? Because we enjoyed each other 's company, we enjoyed what was going on. We had a good conversation we were building each up each other in the faith and, and just enjoying one another. Could I be home watching the game? Could I be home, watching golf? Could I be home, sitting in the lazy boy chair, just being lazy and sleeping? Yeah, I could be doing a lot of other things i mean frankly i don 't even like to sit around and talk to people very much. I mean, you know me. But you know what? God overrides all that and said, no, this is what I called you to. This is why you're here. But it's not always easy. So it's, it's a life of service that he calls us to. It's not a life of attendance, church attendance. It's a life of service. And I'm so thankful we're in a church where a majority of the people serve in one way or another. You people have servants' hearts. I'm thankful for that. But with that being said, don't think that there's not room for improvement. There always is. There always is. And then the third thing that we're going to get into next week is the, the last thing we'll talk about today is the enduring hope. He says an enduring hope. A steadfastness of hope. What is that? Hope is something that what you're hoping for. Something in the future. It speaks of our perseverance in Christ. I mean, aren't you so blessed to understand that, you know what, your salvation is entirely the work of God from the beginning to the end. I don't need to go home tonight and rest my head on my pillow wondering, well, am I going to be able to maintain this salvation another day? I mean, I get tempted in a lot of different ways, a lot of, boy, I don't know, am I going to fall, am am I going to slip away? No. God says he holds us in his hand. He is the one who sustains us. We have a hope, an enduring hope, a perseverance to our faith. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. If that's the case, it's not genuine faith. And by the way, this is the first time that Paul, here in Thessalonians, is the first time that Paul uses what would become one of his favorite trilogies, faith, love, and hope. He uses it over and over throughout his epistles. The three are found together in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and he shows how they sustain us in times of trouble. In Galatians 5 and in Colossians 1, Faith is tied to hope and love in, in a lot of different ways. But the best of all the trilogies that Paul uses these three in is in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. And we just went through this as we went through the book of, of Corinthians. When he says, Now so now faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. They don't go anywhere. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. And so I pray that with the Apostle Paul, we could say about our own church and our own people here in Grace Bible Church, that we remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Father, we pray today that you would cause us to remember these words of truth. Lord, help us not to misunderstand our salvation. Father, no one's going to go to heaven dragging, you know, kicking and screaming, I don't want to go. No. You you change their will. You change their desire. You draw them to yourself. And yet the Bible does say that there's going to be many people that Assume their salvation. And they'll be met with those haunting words of, Who are you? I don't even know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Father, I pray that we would take time to examine our own hearts, our own faith. Help it not to just be a religious thing. Help it to be something that's personal, something that's thriving, something that's growing. Help us not have to depend on something that you did eons, years and years ago in our life to point to that we're saved. But Lord, maybe something that you did today or this morning or yesterday because we are your children and our election is sure. And you confirm that by your sovereign hand in our lives over and over again, protecting us and providing for us and changing us and transforming us more and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a process that stops. This isn't a process that's completed until the day that we are called home to be with you in glory forever. Then, then we will be in your presence. Until then, it's, it's a work of sanctification, a work that continues in our lives. We never really arrive at the perfect Christian life. And Lord, that allows room for improvement in all of our lives. It also allows opportunity for those who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ to do just that. Maybe you're here today and you have yet to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice on Calvary for the payment for your sins. Because I, I don't have to explain to you, you know you have sin. Everybody has sin. If you've ever told a lie, you've sinned. And God demands complete holiness, complete perfection, and there's no way you could ever meet that demand on your own. That's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in our place because he was the perfect sacrifice. And we cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. We're declaring our own unworthiness before a holy God. And that's when God will step into your life and he will save you, he will transform you. The Bible says he will actually place within you the very Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the the, the peace and, and grace that is afforded to us through our salvation. And, Lord, we just pray that you would continue to just bless our time of fellowship today, bless the food to our bodies as we partake across the way for lunch, and just bless our conversation in every way, And help us never forget that there's many, many, especially in our area that need to hear this glorious message of the gospel. And we know that it's your work, and so we ask you to intercede for us on our behalf. Before we ever even talk to someone about Christ, I pray that you would be working in their heart to create that desire, that love for you, that only you can give them. And that we would see many come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.